Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to episode 101. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And our guest today is Andrew Prue, who is going to talk about his research around cognitive bias. I was really happy that Andrew was able to reach out to me and ask to come on to the podcast because I love this kind of research. I love looking at how the brain operates in the addictive process and how we can do something about that. One of the things on his topic here, which is cognitive bias and understanding cognitive bias is that we all have some cognitive bias, but when we get into the addictive process, that cognitive bias is amplified, which enables us to sometimes really make some bad decisions when we're in the midst of addiction, which causes more unmanageability in our life and more problems. So Andrew addresses that and talks about that and talks about his own journey with addiction, which motivated him to do some of this research to understand, hey, how could I make those decisions I did in the midst of addiction? Because I look back now and I'm like, that wasn't really, those weren't really great decisions, right? So it was great to have him on. I really appreciate him coming on to the podcast. So that's awesome. All right, everybody, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. I really appreciate that. And I do read them and I do see them and I do take feedback from them too to try and improve the podcast. So that is really helpful to you listeners out there and that you get a lot out of it. And so please keep writing reviews. It helps get the podcast found and helps get this information out to people that may need it and can get some help. And if you'd like, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast. Click join and continue the conversation online there. All right, everybody, let's start this episode. All 
All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a wonderful guest today that I've really been looking forward to talking with. His name is Andrew Prue, and he is going to talk about cognitive bias and addiction. So Andrew, introduce yourself. Yeah, hi, I'm a, a medical doctor and I've uh, been through addiction myself. So um, I now work exclusively in addictions and because it's become meaningful for me. And uh, I'm involved in research and writing on the subject. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your journey, if you're okay with that, sharing a little bit about your addiction journey. Yeah, sure. I went through addiction myself. I was addicted to alcohol and uh, opioids. And uh, I've been practicing medicine for about 15 years when I developed addiction. And uh, I also uh, practiced psychotherapy. I had a psychotherapy practice alongside my medical practice. And uh, when I kind of fell into addiction, you know, I, I thought I had a pretty good handle on the human mind and, you know, and the human body and all that. Yet things were happening to me that I just couldn't figure out. Right. And I couldn't understand why I just couldn't stop. And, uh, you know, I, I had a pretty low bottom and I ended up, uh, I, I nearly died. I ended up in a detox center and I got sober there. I was uh, very interested in knowing what, what happened to me because uh, I, I didn't understand my behavior. I didn't understand my thought processes and all that. I mean, I, I'd seen people with addictions clinically, but until you live it yourself, you don't really understand how these people live and how they think. And it's, uh, I couldn't explain what had happened to me. So just from my own edification, I um, decided to start uh, researching addiction and, and the addicted mind and, and why, you know, why what happened to me happened and why I couldn't stop it. And um, it became a very fulfilling pursuit. I mean, I learned about myself and, um, and I shared that. I, I wrote a book about the subject to explain, you know, what happens to the mind and, and where, how genetics fit in and, uh, and what happens to the brain physically. I ended up uh, starting a, uh, a research project that involved interviewing over 400 people in various states of addiction, either active addicts in the detox center or people that have been sober for years. And um, I've um, married the data that I collected with, uh, with what's out there in the research literature. Wow. Your story is so familiar to so many people who get into the field of either helping people with addiction or researching addiction, most of the time it's because they've been through it themselves and it's so overwhelming and confusing to understand, how can I do this? It's so against my values, I'm destroying my life, yet I'm still doing it. So it's great that you were able to take that and and put that into, into your research and what you're doing. Yeah, it's, 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 very, it's very interesting. You know, for anyone that's interested in the human mind or behavior, it's a fascinating study because it makes no sense whatsoever. Yet there's an explanation for everything that happens, you know. And my mother, when I was in active addiction and really going downhill, she used to say to me, why can't you just stop? And I used to say, I don't know. I don't know. Right. But uh, when, I, when I did stop, I needed to know why. Right, right. To really understand, like, how, how, how was I able to stop? But then also, like, how could I keep doing it even though one side of me is saying, stop, what are you doing? Yeah. And your, your behavior just keeps going down and down and down. And you say to yourself, why can't I just stop? I'm miserable. I'm not enjoying this anymore. It's not, certainly not fun. So why do I keep doing it? And uh, yeah, fascinating, fascinating thing. Right. So then you started to do this research and started to um, yeah, move yeah. forward with that. What's nice about it is that um, I find, you know, in my research and in my interaction 
with people, uh, especially in detox, they, they want to know. They want to know what happened. They, they feel the same way I did. What happened to my brain? Why was I behaving the way I was? And, uh, you know, because it doesn't make any sense at the time. Right. And for an academic person, it's a fascinating study because, uh, you know, there's so many different brain processes and, you know, the psychology involved is really, really interesting for anybody, uh, academic or otherwise. Right. Yeah, I would imagine. So you started to go on to this quest of figuring, in a way, figuring yourself out. Yeah, exactly. So tell me a little bit uh, about that. So how did that start? You got sober. If you want to talk a little bit about that, you can, kind of how that worked for you and then how you got into this research. Yeah, well, I was uh, I was at a point where um, I thought I had tried everything. Went to the doctor and I was I saw a psychiatrist and I, you know, I, I thought I had done everything. I tried over and over again to stop you know, the drug use and the, and the drinking. And I basically come to the conclusion there was nothing I could do to get out of it. I, I was so miserable. I, I couldn't keep living that way. So I thought I can't live without the drugs and I can't live with them. So I was, I was actually planning suicide and um, I thought that was the only way out. And uh, so some friends came and uh, picked me up, <laughs> up, up off the floor one day, literally, and took me to the local detox center. And, you know, they, they had these, uh, the guys from the 12-step program that were coming in and putting on meetings. And uh, I saw, wow, these guys were all like me, you know? Right. And, and look at them all. They're, they're all living life again and happy. And uh, I thought, maybe there is a way out, you know? And uh, they gave me their, their book, right? They, they call it the big book, the Alcoholics Anonymous book. And uh, I got reading that. And, you know, more than anything, I, I saw that I wasn't completely crazy, that my behavior was just like millions of other people who came before me. And millions of other people who came before me got healthy again and, and got well. And a little light went on in my brain and, you know, all of a sudden I had hope again. Whoa, there is a way out of this. There is, you know, I went from being basically someone who had accepted his own death to someone who had hope. And uh, that's, that's quite a, an experience, you know. Wow, that is profound. Yeah. And um, I ended up not going to any treatment center. There's, uh, there's quite a waiting list in Canada, and, and I, I just got heavily involved in the 12-step program, and, and for me, that, that did it. Wow. And uh, I found uh, my recovery in that setting. So really being able to see that other people had also experienced this, that you weren't alone when, when, when they came and got you or you saw the meetings and you went to 12-step, you saw like, man, I, I'm not alone. There, there must be something here. There must be something I can do. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that, that's a wonderful feeling because, you know, I can't speak for others, but I know for me, I thought there was something seriously wrong with me. I thought there was, you know, I was different than everybody else, the way I was behaving and thinking. And, you know, and it's it's really comforting to know that I'm not an unusual person. There's nothing particularly wrong with me. Right. I just have symptoms that are typical of addiction that everybody who's in addiction experiences. And all those behaviors, all those thoughts, all those horrible things I'd done, all fall under the umbrella of addiction. Right. So I wasn't a liar, even though I lied all the time to cover my addiction and to continue my substance use. And, you know, I, I wasn't this horrible person. I was, you know, a person with addiction who was expressing the typical symptoms of it. Right. This is actually like a, a addiction is a, is a, is a disease, a, yeah. a problem. It's not this moral issue at all. That's right. Yeah. So you know, if asked for the overall message I would give to anybody who's struggling with addiction, I would say that, uh, you know, the first thing is to understand that addiction is a matter of biology. It is not a matter of morality or choice. 
Right. And uh, nobody wakes up one day and says, uh, I'm going to become a, an addict today. You know, that's my goal today. <laughs> right. I mean, if you work in addiction and, and or you experience addiction, I mean, it's just so obvious. I think it's hard for people who don't struggle with addiction or don't have, don't know it in some kind of personal level to understand to understand it. Sometimes it can be hard to, to get it. It can feel like a moral issue. Like, well, just don't do it. Just stop. But yeah, the yeah. brain is like, nope, you're not going to. And I'm going to find a way for you to, to continue this. Yeah. I mean, I went to medical school in the 90s, but uh, and it's, it's not a whole lot different now. You know, I practiced medicine those, all those years. And I honestly believe that people with addictions were bad people who woke up every morning and made bad decisions. Right. And, you know, when, when I used to work in the emergency room and uh, we, we used to get people that came in all the time, just creating these weird and wonderful ways to get prescriptions for narcotics. And, and it annoyed us, you know, I mean, doctors and nurses, we were really annoyed by them. Right. And we just, you know, and my medical training and my experience was that these are just bad people who wake up every day and, and make bad decisions. And, uh, you know, when, when you're in addiction yourself, you apply that stigma to yourself. It's not a pleasant thing when you see yourself doing that. Yeah, definitely. So it's very, very helpful for self-forgiveness and, and you know, to to find uh, recovery and, you know, self-forgiveness is an important part of the process. And uh, that's part of it is understanding that you're not a bad person. You're not a liar. You're, you're a person who was addicted and was expressing the typical symptoms of addiction. Right. And this gets you into some of your research that you had sent me about cognitive bias. And so I'm really interested in, in hearing about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I was really surprised um, when I was doing my interviews with these people with addictions and, and it matched well with my own experience. I found that people with addiction can rationalize anything. <laughs> you know, they, they can come up with reasons to support the you know, the decisions that are destroying their lives. And I was already familiar with the concept of cognitive bias, but uh, I thought, okay, there's, these are some serious cognitive biases. So, you know, I kind of uh, started documenting the various biases I observed and, you know, getting into the research literature. Can you, can you, before you start, can you define cognitive bias for people who might not know what that term means? Can you define it and how you were looking at it in this research? Yeah, sure. So a cognitive bias, it's, it's not just something that happens to people with addiction. It's something that happens to everybody. It's our natural inclination to make information match what we want to believe or what we already believe. For example, humans have a fundamental need to think that they're awesome, right? Everyone wants to think they're good and they're productive and they're effective people. So we tend to be biased where we pay more attention to information that shows how awesome we are. And we tend to pay less attention to information that shows that, that maybe we're not as good as we think we are. So that's an example of a cognitive bias that, that everybody does. Right. And I, I would imagine we could flip that too. Like, yeah. If you're in the active addiction, you can't see any of the good things you're doing. You, you only look at all the bad stuff. Yeah. So you know, there, there's been identified 188 different cognitive biases that we that humans use to support their ideas and beliefs and values. And uh, it's basically where we twist information to suit our beliefs because it's easier for us to, to adjust information and to you know distort information than it is to change our beliefs. But um, I found that people with addiction, they, this distorted information uh, is pushed to extremes. 
so that they're they're able to substantiate their substance use when there's when it's something that can't be substantiated. Like how how can you substantiate continued substance use uh, when you're spending all your money, you're losing your job, you're losing your family, you're losing your health, and uh, and you're miserable. So it's one thing for someone to distort information a little bit to support their their need to to know that they're really good person and all that. But it's another thing to distort information to support continuing using it, uh, drugs or alcohol. So one of the characteristics of uh, addiction is that it takes all the flaws and weaknesses in human psychology and the way our brain works, and it pushes them to extremes. And this, this was one way that uh, I found that uh, our psychology was pushed to extreme by addiction, propagate itself. Right. So what I hear you saying is that we have this cognitive bias, but when we go into addiction, it's, it's completely amplified. Yeah, absolutely. And there's three really types of cognitive bias that, that I found. And, and the same is reflected in the research literature that, that are particularly prominent in addiction. So one is called an attentional bias, where our attention is directed toward things that support our drug use. And the counter to that is we ignore stuff that would, would tell us to stop using drugs. So we would give more attention to cues, uh, triggers, things that would make us want to use drugs, such as our desire to avoid withdrawal or our desire to, you know, if we have negative feelings, our desire to escape from them. We, we put all our attention there and we ignore the fact that our family is telling us, look, you have a problem, you know, you, you should get help with that. Right. We're going to focus on that one thing. Yeah. You know, this is, uh, your mind can take all your attentional resources and focus them on things that are, you know, that propagate the addiction. And that's one of the reasons people like to hang out with other people who are drinking or using because, you know, it's something that supports everyone else is doing it. I'm doing it. I must be okay. So it kind of confirms their their bias. So they hang out with people that will support that cognitive bias. That's right. And, you know, indeed, that's, uh, you know, they call that a confirmation bias, where you look for anything that'll confirm your beliefs, even if your beliefs are wrong or dysfunctional or maladaptive. Right, right. And, you know, another kind of bias that is really prominent in, in addiction is, is what they call the optimism bias. And that's, uh, again, this, this applies to all humans, but uh, in particular in addiction, you, you see it particularly prominent. And optimism biases are where we we cling to the belief that things are going to be okay in the future, that we'll be able to figure things out, that, you know, we'll be able to, I'll be able to do this and, and it won't turn into a problem for me. You see that in, in regular people quite often, but in addiction, you hear people all the time that aren't quite ready to get help yet. They'll say, well, you know what, Monday, I'm going to stop drinking or I'm not picking up anymore. Starting Monday, I'm just going to get through the weekend. And, and they honestly believe it. They honestly believe that you know, and they, they'll swear up and down, Monday, I'm stopping. And even though they failed 50 times in the past, trying to stop their drug use or their drinking on their own, they honestly make themselves believe that they will be able to control their drug use or stop it. Right. I mean, it's like a real belief. Like it's, it's not, they're not just making up an excuse in a way. They actually are bought into this. This belief system has taken hold that, you know what? It'll be, you know, Monday, it's going to be good. That's right. That's right. So they have this undue optimism 
that everything is going to be fine. They'll be able to control their drug use and stop. And, and it's a major barrier to people getting help, right? Right, because yeah. why am I going to go throw myself at, uh, at the mercy of addiction counselors or some program where I have to go away for four weeks if I can do it on my own, you know? Right. So it's a major barrier to people seeking or accepting help, outside help, when they, when they really, you know, an objective viewpoint, would, they would know, look, I've tried to control my drinking or my using 50 times and it's never worked. I need help. But when people are ignoring that information and clinging to the belief that they will be able to do the stop on their own, that's the optimism bias. And it's one thing for someone who's, you know, starting a business and they cling to the belief that their business is going to succeed and be awesome. And, and they ignore the fact that, oh, the, the bank wasn't too excited about it or the economy's not good right now or whatever. I mean, that's one thing. That's everyday optimism bias. But this is optimism bias on steroids, you know, kind of. Thing. Right. Yeah. When you when you failed, you know, umpteen times to stop your drug use. But this time and, is different. Yeah, this time is going to be different, you know. So that that's that's a you know a considerable stretch of the optimism bias. And people have a, a what we call a recall bias as well, which is a serious problem in um, in recovery because they they recall information that they want to believe. So what happens is uh, even though you know you talk to anybody that's caught in addiction and they'll tell you it got to a point where it wasn't fun anymore and it was miserable and I would do anything to quit. And their life is just train wrecked. But again, even six months in recovery or a few years in recovery, all of a sudden they start thinking, you know, it was kind of fun. It was, uh, it was nice to have that release. It was nice to, you know, and they forget the, the bad stuff and they recall, you know, they think back to their drinking or using days as, as fun or, or, or some kind of a freedom. Right. That's so, I hear that so often, you know, when people relapse, they really, it just doesn't come into their mind that, do you remember the 50 other times that it was really bad? Yes, you've been sober for six months, but do you remember like how bad it was? And they aren't even thinking that it's not even there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, the 12 step program recognizes that they, they know that, I mean, uh, they have a, a slogan they use it. It's called remember when. Right. And, uh, and that's what that's designed to do is, is the 12 step program recognizes this recall bias. So they, they tell people, look, if you're start thinking, start thinking back to, you know what, it was kind of fun back when I was drinking or, you know, it was nice to have that release or whatever. They said, remember when, you know, think back to how miserable you were and all the destruction, all the people you've hurt and how sick you were. Right. There's a, there's a exercise that sometimes we do when people get into addiction treatment and, and start to work on it is to write that all down, almost like a first step, I guess, you know, where you, you write down how bad it was so that later on, six months from now or a year from now, you can pull that out and, and reread it. And, and try and counter that, that bias. But I, I didn't even realize that was, this is what it was. It was this, um, this recall bias. Recall bias. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a fantastic technique. To use. You know, that, that's an excellent, excellent technique. I uh, advocate something that I call um, remember when meditation. And uh, I've, I've used this, uh, this technique with patients and, uh, in early recovery, I get them to do a meditation, nothing fancy, you know, where I just get them to sit comfortably, close their eyes, 
focus their mind and not let their mind wander off. If it wanders off, bring it back on subject and just remember back to how sick they were and how miserable they were and how badly they wanted to stop, you know, when they finally, finally were able to get out of their addiction. And in early recovery, I get them to do that literally two to four minutes a day. Wow. And uh, I've had very, very positive feedback. I'm a meditator myself. I have been for many years, but uh, I, I use that technique myself. And, you know, I found my first year in recovery to be a lot easier than I thought it was, uh, than I thought it would be, because I found that, that for me, that remember when meditation, just, a, you know, two or three or four minutes a day, really, really, really took away the cravings and the, you know, the so-called recall bias where you think back and think, oh my, you know, it was maybe it'd be good to have a drink right now. And, uh, I, you know, and that's similar to the exercise you do, where you just cause people to in some way be mindful that there is, their mind is going to try to make them remember things as being good, even though they weren't. Right. Well, there were, I was thinking of another saying in, in the 12 steps too, is, is play the tape all the way out. Exactly. Play, yeah. play the story all the way to the end. Don't yeah. just stop at the beginning where it's all great, play it till the end. And sometimes that helps kind of knock them out of that, that cognitive bias, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's, that's a, a technique you see in a number of the relapse prevention techniques, you know, um, uh, where they, you know, the, like the Marlett and Gordon's relapse prevention model and all that, where they, uh, you know, because we, our recall bias makes us remember the party but it doesn't make us remember the, the hangover, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a fantastic, fantastic way to overcome, overcome that. And it's great because it teaches people to be mindful, you know, to, to not let, the, let their instinct take over because their instinct is going to get them in trouble. So in, I have another question. In your research, you started to identify all these cognitive biases and how they kind of flow through our thinking or through the brain and and how to counter them? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's key. I mean, uh, for me, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And the end point of all my research is, you know, I, I ask the question, so what? So what can we do clinically? What can we do? What tools can we give people to take home with them that they can, you know, simple tools that maybe uh, they can write on a card or just keep in mind? And um, cognitive bias, I mean, it's a very powerful thing. It, it propagates addiction. It helps people substantiate to rationalize their addiction, to uh, ignore the truth. And it's also uh, cognitive biases are a very, very powerful cause of relapse, as, as we've discussed. So there have been some uh, techniques that have been developed. Most of them are actually pulled from the 12-step program and, and have been applied in, in modern uh, relapse prevention programs and that sort of thing. But uh, they're called debiasing techniques, which is kind of cool because you're basically, you know, it's like you're uh, you're flushing out your brain or something, getting the bias. So and that's that's kind of what they do, you know. Right, and I think being able to just actually recognize that we have cognitive bias, um, yeah. right, in and of itself, kind of helps you go. Wait a minute, let me check my thinking. You know, exactly. am I in a cognitive bias right now? Yeah. Can I expand my thought process? Because I think sometimes it's hard to recognize when we're even yeah. in cognitive bias. Absolutely. I mean, you, you hit it right on the head with that because, you know, metacognition, you know, the psychologists refer to 
being an awareness of our thought processes as metacognition. I just call it being mindful, you know, being aware of, of, of our, what our brain is up to. And addiction is really, really, it's, it's a disease that's very much characterized by lack of insight. By that, I mean, people don't see what's going on in their brain, see these dysfunctional processes. And metacognition, you know, being mindful of, of these dysfunctional processes is very, very, very powerful. And so you hit it right on the head there. And I, I believe that we should take people in very early recovery and make them aware of these psychological processes. So when it happens, they can recognize it and do something about it. Absolutely. So just for example, there's a, there's a technique that's, that's been described in the literature. And, you know, and there's been a fair amount of work in, in, in validating it. It's called cognitive bias manipulation. And it's, it's a software-based kind of program where they sit people down and, and they manipulate them through these interactive computer programs to try to eliminate bias from their thinking. But the problem is, is that uh, they don't tell the participants what they're doing or what, what they're trying to accomplish. And I think that's a mistake because when you tell people, people want to know, you know, they want to know why, why was I, why was I thinking the way I was? Why was I able to rationalize anything? Right. You know, I mean, why did I actually believe that what I was doing was okay? In a way, that's why you did all your research, right? Is like, yeah, I want to know exactly. what's going on in my brain. Exactly. And, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, I speak at a number of public engagements and, and I get people with grade eight educations that want to know the details. They, they want to know these things. Yes. They, they might not have an interest in psychology per se, but when it comes to their own psychology, especially where it's pretty much ruined their lives, they want to know these things. And let's tell them, let's make them aware of these, this dysfunctional thinking that happens. Yeah. And what's going on in your brain and what's going on in your body and and what's happening? I'm I'm definitely on the same page with you. I think that's part of why I do the podcast too. Is like I think people want this information and need this information so that they can make wiser decisions for themselves that help them create the life they want. Yeah, absolutely. And my first book that I published, uh, you know, I've been blessed with very very good sales, and and I think that's why is because you know the book is about what the heck happened to your brain, what the heck happened to your your thought process, your psychology, what parts of your genetics were involved here. And, and I explain all that and people want to know that, you know, even people that aren't really avid readers uh, want to know it. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of feedback from readers and, and, you know, they, a lot of them have follow-up questions and stuff and people really want to know this stuff. It's interesting when you're learning about yourself like that. So yeah, making people aware is, is something that, and they'll listen, they'll listen. Uh, you know, when, when you explain these things to them, they want to know. And it's a really, really, I, I would say that uh, having awareness that your brain is going to try to talk you into bad decisions using these biases, these cognitive biases, uh, just the, the, the mere knowledge of that process is, is a very, very powerful, you know, I think the most powerful de-biasing technique there is. And then when you can add counter arguments to those biases, you can balance that out. Yeah. You know, most of the other de-biasing techniques that I advise are, are based on exactly that. Is, is first of all, you know, you, you have an awareness, you, you identify these thought processes that are illogical, dysfunctional, maladaptive, and they're going to get you in trouble. So first is, you know, an awareness of them so you can identify them and then you challenge them. 
And and that's uh, that's things like that exercise you were telling me, uh, you know, where you get people to play the tape through to the end or to write down what life was like when they were in active addiction. You know, so I encourage people to be open minded and which isn't easy because um, humans are not naturally open minded people. We like to cling to our beliefs or what we want to believe. And absolutely. Yeah. I encourage people to be open minded to other people's opinions and other ways of thinking so they can elicit feedback from other people in order to defeat cognitive bias. So if they start thinking, you know what? maybe having a drink or, you know, doing a hit again, I'll just do it just the once. And, you know, and if they can recognize, hmm, maybe my brain's trying to talk me into something here that isn't the best decision for me. Go and go and tell your, your mother that, hey, mom, I'm thinking of going to have a drink again this weekend. Do you think that's a good idea? You see? And I can pretty much guarantee her feedback is going to be nope. And, and even if you don't have someone right there that you can talk to about it, you know, you can the psychologist referred to it as the empty chair technique, where you sit in one chair and say what you're going to say. I'm going to have a drink this weekend, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pick up a bag of heroin or whatever, but just this once. And then you get up and you go sit in another chair and you answer as if you were somebody else. Try to visualize your situation from another person's perspective to challenge these, these, these biases that your brain is, your addicted brain is going to try to use to talk you into going back to where you were before. Because it will, it will, you know. Oh yeah, definitely it will. So what I what I hear you saying is that, you know, with these cognitive biases, there's actually techniques that you can use to really help you challenge these cognitive biases, kind of undo them, get a more balanced perspective. And if you use these techniques, you're going to really help yourself make better decisions for yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the whole relapse prevention approach that the 12-step program uses is, is based on this. I mean, the 12 steps were invented in 1936, so long before any of this stuff was known about. But it's essentially what they're doing is, is they're making people aware, look, your brain, your addicted brain is going to try to talk you into going back where you were before. It's going to try to talk you into thinking it's okay to, you know, to go to that party where there's going to be cocaine or to have a few drinks just this once, you know, your brain is going, to, you know, guaranteed in recovery. It's going to at some point talk you and try to talk you into that. So realize that that might not be, that might be cognitive bias that are happening. That might be my disease trying to trick me into doing something that I really shouldn't. Right. And these are normal aspects of how the brain works. They're just amplified to a degree that become extremely detrimental. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? You know, I, I spoke to someone recently who relapsed after 28 years in recovery. So, you know, that surprises people. But people like you and me that work with people in addictions, you know, we see that all the time. Right. People even decades in recovery. So you're, you're never, ever immune to it. You're, you're never, ever so far into recovery that you're immune to these things. And we know why, because psychoactive substances cause an, an inflammation in the brain. Right. And this inflammation uh, causes connections between our nerve cells that, that form mental pathways to break down. And then they reform in new pathways that support addiction and addictive thinking. And that's one of the reasons that these cognitive biases are present even decades into recovery. So nobody is ever, ever, you know, so far away from their last drink or drug that their disease isn't going to try to talk them into doing something that they shouldn't. Right, right. Wow. 
Well, I think we could we could talk for easily another hour, Andrew, about this. We could get into even more detail, but we're coming up on our time on on this episode. So if anyone's listening out there and they're struggling this with with addiction, or maybe they know someone who's struggling with addiction, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to say? What would be your message? First of all, there is nobody, nobody who's not capable of a full and lasting permanent recovery and return to healthy living. And uh, relapse is a process. So the sooner in that process you interrupt the process and do something about it, the easier it's going to be. So talk to somebody if you're struggling or if your mind is telling you things that you don't think are good. And for people that are still in addiction, it doesn't matter how far gone you are, how addicted you are, how much, how many bridges you burned in your life. There is nobody, not one single person out there that isn't capable of recovery if they accept the help that's out there. And that's, uh, I, I think that's my number one message for anybody. Oh, thank you so much. If people want to find out or contact you or find out more about you, how can they reach you? Yeah, I, I love hearing from people. I have an email address. It's uh, recovery.folio. That's uh, F-O-L-I-O. Dot, uh, at gmail.com, recovery.folio at gmail.com. And I, I answer everybody that, that writes to me and, and I love hearing from people. Great. And I will also list that in the show notes. And you also mentioned your your book, but you didn't mention the title. Can you mention that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have two books in print right now. I have one that's called um, The Alcoholic Slash Addict Within. And that, that's, uh, that's available on Amazon.com. It's, uh, it's about our brain, our genetics, our psychology that uh, are involved in addiction and in recovery. And I have another book that I just uh, had published a couple months ago. It's also available on uh, Amazon.com. It's called um, A Trip Through the 12 Steps with a Doctor and Therapist. And that's for anybody that's interested in the 12 Steps uh, to have a really in-depth kind of guidebook to take them through it to use, you know, as an adjunct to the 12-step literature, as a companion to the 12-step literature. Great. Thank you, Andrew, so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. I I really appreciate it. Thank you, Duane, and thank you for your interest in in addiction. I I really appreciate that. Um, I appreciate everybody that's involved in this, uh, this horrible disease. So thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 101. Once again, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there. And if you know anybody who might benefit from the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with them. I totally appreciate it. All right, everyone, have a wonderful and safe day day and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. 
My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.